Greetings to all of you. From the heart, I want to thank you for inviting me to take part in these really valuable exchanges. It's a very kind and generous invitation, which to me illustrates the open-mindedness of your tradition, following in the footsteps of the noble Ibn Arabi. So I'm particularly happy to be here because of that deep, inspiring topic that we are speaking of, but also because I feel a kinship with your tradition, and I feel very much at home here with you today. So it is truly a privilege and a pleasure to be here, and I'm already learning a lot. My topic sounds like a play on words. The wisdom of the heart unveils the heart of wisdom. But in reality, it is also a very short summary of the beginningless and endless journey that never need be taken in the way we understand it in my tradition. So I would like to take you very, very briefly on a survey of this journey. Imagine a day when the sky is low and dark. It's raining under a thick cover of gray cloud. But you are sitting on a plane taking off. And the plane suddenly bursts through a cloud. And you see this luminous expanse of limitless blue sky under a bright sun. And even the clouds are like luminous snow peaks. How amazing. When you think that this vast, tranquil space filled with sunshine is there all the time, above our heads, unchanging, despite whatever may go on under the clouds. One of the premises of Mahana Buddhism is that each and every one of us is endowed with a pure and perfect nature, what we call the essence of enlightenment, or to put it very simply, Buddha nature. And this, this is no other than primordial wisdom and compassion inseparable. This true nature of ours is changeless. It is present at all times. It is limitless and luminous. But you might say, if this is so, why are we not aware of it, of being it, right now? Why is everyone not enlightened on the spot? Why are we not spiritually realized right now? That's because the sunshine of this original nature is obscured by a cloud of ignorance. Ignorance not in the sense of being an ignoramus that hasn't learned this or that. Ignorance in the fundamental sense of not knowing, not recognizing this essence of ours for what it is and just as it is. Mistaking it for an independent self, separate from everything, which splits reality into two. The moment there is I, there is other. 
is I, there is you. And then the dualistic dynamic develops between two opposite polarities. Ego sits at the center of its world and spins a deluded representation of reality which makes it blind to the non-dual ultimate nature, though it may like to project the figure of a separate external divinity. Under the cloud of non-recognition, relative reality is experienced as the fabric of life on earth. Unaware of the changeless purity of our true nature, we do not know our own face. Now, if we reflect on our sky metaphor, we will find that the clouds are not of the same nature as the sky. They are not inherent to it. They are only the momentary product of certain atmospheric conditions which come together at a given time and create this phenomenon. Once those particular weather conditions have changed, clouds vanish of their own accord. And the sky is revealed in, the blue, in, in all its blueness without any need to go up and cut out large chunks of it in the shape of clouds. Similarly, the dualistic perception of reality obscures the awareness of one's innate purity and perfection. However, the good news is that the clouds of delusion are not an innate part of our essence. Ignorance is not like some contaminated part of mind, some cancer that needs to be excised. The clouds are only a fleeting illusion due to the concatenation of various causes and conditions. But when these stop, deluded perceptions vanish of their own accord. This passing delusion can be dispelled by direct insight into what it is. This is beautifully shown by a classical example. In poor light, a man sees a rope on the ground, a coiled rope, and he thinks, oh, this is a snake. His impression is so vivid that he actually gets frightened, frozen on the spot, unable to move. It's obvious to, to us sitting here comfortably that there's no need for him or for anyone to go and shoot the snake or seek other solutions such as, oh, maybe feeding the snake nice tidbits so that he gets gentle, or poison it, or put it in a cage, or numb it with a dart, etc., and so on and so forth. There's no need at all for the very simple reason that there has never been a snake there in the first place. Only the deluded idea of a snake superimposed on a simple rope. Now, the instant the man realizes this, he becomes free from his illusion and fear. His mistaken perception ceases and he sees the rope for what it is. Just a simple, useful length of braided hemp. The deluded perception of reality will never cease as long as one continues to operate within its own dualistic logic. 
It would only be like trying to invent new ways of dealing with the snake. What is needed is to bypass dualistic perception. Uh, sorry, what is needed to bypass dualistic perception is clear and direct insight, seeing what is there just as it is. That sort of insight can only be gained through the wisdom of the heart. Now, what is the wisdom of the heart? It is not conceptual or intellectual knowledge, evidently. Otherwise, there would be a great many enlightened people about. Wisdom is generally understood as a distillation of knowledge and experience. What I would call ordinary or profane wisdom can be acquired in many different ways. And although it is very valuable in life, it cannot lead to direct insight into the true nature of things because it still operates within a dualistic framework. In other words, in the dark, deprived of the sunlight of the forever sky. Ibn Arabi says in the kernel of kernel, the intelligence that appertains to material things is defective in the understanding of great things. To be able to understand this, it is necessary to have an intelligence that goes beyond these things and reaches further. So what is needed is the sort of spiritual wisdom that can see what is there just as it is. We call it praja in Sanskrit, shirap in Tibetan, which in both instances means a very special, a very fine sort of wisdom. And for the sake of simplicity here, we could call it profound wisdom, although one should really add to it penetrating, profound penetrating wisdom. But to make it easier now, we would just call it profound wisdom. And it is defined in a very, the most simple way as the ability to discern the authentic nature of phenomena above and beyond our highly conditioned perception. So if this wisdom is so necessary, how do we go about getting it? The Mahayana tradition shows that this wisdom has three aspects, and these aspects of wisdom correspond to the three means of developing it. Study, reflection or contemplation, and meditation. Study and contemplation or reflection are required to establish the right view of reality. In other words, how to understand what is defined as the relative and the ultimate. This is, of course, an incredibly topic, deep topic in which we would not have time to get in, to which we will not have time to investigate now. And even in Mahayana itself, there are many different ways of explaining it according to different levels. But suffice it to know for the time being that through study and contemplation, one can get a theoretical understanding of reality. This is called the wisdom of study, which we acquire through the study of scriptures and the commentaries of the great teachers. 
and the wisdom of reflection, reflecting on the meaning of the scriptures and the commentaries. The use of those wisdoms is to give certainty about the nature of things, not just for the sake of it, but because once you have that certainty, there will be absolutely no doubt about what you're dealing with when it comes to meditation. There will be no hindrance during the meditation. You could say that, in a way, those two aspects of wisdoms are the ones that use the intellect to elaborate the understanding, theoretical understanding, but push the intellect to the very end of its limits, where it just snaps because something else has to take place to understand. And, for instance, one uses very fine kinds of logic to understand, from a theoretical viewpoint, what is reality, ultimate relative and ultimate but this kind of intelligence only goes that far I will not expand on this topic at all because I know you are all very very familiar with the processes of study and reflection so let us turn to the third way which is meditation this is the very profound way of developing wisdom Now, in the West, meditation often means contemplation or reflection. It is often understood as a discursive process. But it is interesting to point out that the Tibetan word that would be used for this is gompa, which means to cultivate, to get familiar with, to get accustomed to, in other words, to practice. What is practiced and how? depends on the context, and we will come back to it in a moment. Before we go into a little more detail about the meditation, we just have to stress a little point, which is that all three aspects of wisdom have to be developed jointly. They should go hand in hand in a balanced spiritual training. In our tradition, theoretical wisdom is essential, but only in so far as it can sustain meditative practice by providing a firm foundation for it. You could say the intellect is very useful, but only in so far as it can sustain the vision of the heart. (coughs) Study and contemplation are not goals in themselves. They can be compared to looking at maps to prepare a journey, whereas meditation is the actual traveling to get to one's destination. And there's a very severe warning given to us about the dangers of focusing exclusively either on theory or on meditative practice. Of course, the pursuit of knowledge holds very great seduction. It can captivate the mind, which will overindulge in study and never go on to the actual practice. And this is very much like studying the maps without ever traveling to one's destination. You become a specialist of the itinerary. You know every little bit of the path, but you never go there. You don't taste the country. You don't know what it's like. And this kind of um, mistake could be viewed as a manipulation of ego, seeking comfort in theory because it feels threatened by meditation which deals directly with the heart rather than with the head. Study then becomes an alibi for not practicing. 
Now, this warning sometimes sounds very, very outrageous to most of us Westerners who've always been brought up in believing in the extreme superiority of the intellect above any of our faculties. And it is most useful because it's easy for us to fall into that kind of bias or mistake. Now, conversely, if one attempts to meditate without the proper background of study and reflection, that can be quite fruitless and even dangerous. It is like traveling to foreign parts without a map, without references, exposed to risks of all sorts, dangers, useless detours, and then one can even become hopelessly lost. Patrol, a great uh, 19th century master, said that meditation, meditating without having studied is like trying to climb up a cliff without arms. This <laughs> is a good one. Milarepa, you've probably all heard about Milarepa, the famous Tibetan yogi. He said, the hungry are not satisfied by hearing about food. What they need is to eat. In the same way, just to know the teaching is useless. It has to be practiced. A similar statement is found in Ibn Arabi's Colonel of Colonel, who says, the one who has not tasted cannot know. This is a necessary condition. Finally, on this topic, Menarepa gives us a deep comment on the matter of knowledge. This is a very, very well-known statement of Milarepa's. It's often quoted and it's often used by meditators to remind themselves of what it's all about. In Tibetan, it goes, Chichi Kundrol Jashi Chiknyam, which means knowing one means liberation, knowing hundreds, the one is spoiled. So if, no, if one knows one, namely the true nature of things, liberation will be found. But if the mind gets sidetracked, sidetracked into mere intellectual pursuits, the one understanding will be spoiled. So now we can return to what is meant by meditation. Of course, it's a very vast topic. Endless techniques are available. I'm also thinking on the way of the Hezekiah tradition with the prayer of the heart. But in our present context of developing wisdom, we are speaking of the highest, finest form of meditation. That is a meditation which brings profound familiarity with the mind in order to gain direct insight into its true nature. Its true nature, which will turn out to be no other than the ultimate essence of all things. In Vajrayana Buddhism, such a meditation is called Mahamudra, the great seal in the Kaji tradition. In the Nyingma tradition, the same thing is named Mahasampana, the great perfection. Now, to try to simplify greatly, which is an extremely profound and vast subject, you could say there are two main stages of training in this sort of meditation. First stage is calming the mind. The second is gaining insight. The untrained mind is generally quite unaware of the thoughts, of the feelings, of the perceptions that agitate it. 
It is compared to muddy water in which nothing is visible. Therefore, the first step of training is learning how to let the mind settle and find some stability. This in Sanskrit we call shamatha, in Tibetan we call shine. It means tranquility or calm abiding. It's the settling, the calming of the mind. Upon this peaceful basis, one learns to become mindful of one's thoughts, feelings, sensations, and gradually of all phenomena. At first we are totally unaware of what we do and see and perceive and feel, but gradually one can learn to become very mindful of that, very aware. Once the mud has settled, the water is transparent and one can see what goes on, but at that point only on the relative plane. When some stability has been gained through tranquility meditation, it doesn't necessarily follow that one will develop insight. There is no automatic upgrading. All the more so as one can become quite attached to the tranquil state of mind. It's one of the other warnings we are given very seriously, which is once you begin to experience the calmness of mind, there's a feeling of relief, feeling of ease, a feeling of peace, of space. And one can get very attached to those feelings and to the experiences that may arise within those states. So one may get sidetracked and prefer to remain immersed in this rather than go on to face the sharp mirror of insight, because this is quite another kettle of fish, if I dare say. In Mahayana Buddhism, we are warned against this temptation because it binds us to the limited self and to dualistic reality. In the Mahamudra tradition, tranquility is taught as the necessary basis for stability of in, for, uh, sorry, the necessary basis of stability for insight. And after that, once the, this, the basis of stability and insight can arise, then thereafter, when one is practicing, both of them will operate jointly. They cannot be real insight without a good deal of stability. But of course, there's no insight necessarily when there's just stability. So they will then go hand in hand in a meditation practice, which brings us to our second step of training. This one is called insight, vipassana in Sanskrit, langtong in Tibetan, which both mean to see more, to see extra. Once the mind has become tranquil and stable enough through the right training, insight can arise. And if this insight is properly nurtured, it will develop. Now, to give you a very little idea of how this happens. First, one cultivates awareness of the relative mind and the way it works. And gradually, some insight develops. At first, one is totally unaware of what even is going on. So some of the questions we are asked is, uh, what is mind? Where is it? What is its color? And once you understand those, once you've worked through those things, there'll be other deeper question is, uh, who is watching the mind, who is doing this, etc. So there's a lot of different meditations that are done to establish this insight into the mind. 
And then once the mind has become fairly stable and aware in the way we've just described, it is ready for direct insight into the true nature of things. We're not talking there just about being aware of what goes on, but really direct insight that pierces through duality. And of course, this is a very, very important turning point. Traditionally, the teacher does what we call introducing the disciple to his own mind. And the more the disciple is open to his teacher, the more he or she will be receptive to what we call this pointing out of the true nature. And there we have to say that devotion plays a vital part. It is a decisive factor in the cultivation of insight. The importance of the teacher and devotion will be mentioned again later on briefly because it is a vital part of the spiritual training. The initial introduction to one's own mind may be the moment of definitive enlightenment for beings who are exceptionally mature spiritually. When they're ready, that's it. We hear of such wondrous happenings in the biographies of some of the patriarchs of our lineage. But for many, however, what happens is um, a glimpse Rather than the direct vision of a limitless sunlit sky, it may be a glimpse of it through a pinprick or through a small hole in the fabric of deluded perception, but it is a genuine, direct experience of the true nature. It is seen just as it is, nonetheless. The extent to which it is seen and experienced is still limited, but in its nature it is the same. And in that first experience or the beginnings of these developments, the merging of the seer and the seen is still only a fleeting experience. The whole object of the practice thereafter, once you have made, you've been introduced to your mind, you've begun to recognize what it is, who you are, what is your true nature. The whole object of the practice after that becomes to cultivate the insight until this awareness of the true nature is present 24 hours a day. Now, I found a, sta- I found a statement of Bull and Graf, which is very clear on this. He says, this kernel, once found with- within one, is to be understood and tasted if one wishes to arrive at the higher level of mystical intuition. Some contemporary masters, our teachers, are blessed with this level of realization. And the mere presence can convey the magnificence of being one with the ultimate while fully present in the relative, unstained by it, and rich of all the treasures of compassion they pour onto others. I was reading recently recently, the autobiography of a contemporary Nyingma Palama, who's now passed away, Ojin Turku, and he was speaking of one of his own teachers, and this teacher of uh, Ojin Turku was deploring that there was still a little moment between falling asleep and dreaming when he lost the thread of the awareness. Just that tiny moment between falling asleep and dreaming, but as soon as he was in dreamland, he regained the awareness. So 
he felt he still had to work to get the awareness fully present at all times. And we are told that when there has been enough cultivation of this awareness, it will become spontaneous. First, we have to train, train very hard and work on it. But once it has been recognized enough and one is immersed in it, then at one point there's no more effort required, very little. It will become spontaneous and one would say second nature, though it would be more exact to say prime nature. It's a reconnecting with one's own original pure nature. Now, a final point to make about insight, it's an important point. Insight doesn't mean visions or visitations. Such experiences may happen in meditation, but they are not the point. They are viewed as a possible epiphenomenon of the practice. They do happen when the mind is clear and tranquil. But in any case, they are not a necessary part of a practice And there should be no expectation of their happening, no worry if they do not happen, and no attachment if they do. This is a very important guideline for people who meditate because everyone has such a different makeup and constitution and sensitivity. Some people are very prone to visions and experiences and feelings of all sorts. Some some others do not function at all like that. But our teachers told us, tell us that um, this is not what matters, is the actual understanding, this is the deep experience. Whatever form it takes, which is definitely different for each one of us, and which is why there should be never any comparison. And we are taught to distinguish between experiences and realization. So there's one thing which is experiences, the other is realization. Experiences is what we just described. It's fleeting and contingent. Experiences come and go or don't come, which is not a problem. But realization is what remains. It relates to a real understanding that becomes part of oneself. So the point of meditation is not to have experiences. They will come if they come, but we we let them go. We recognize them, we let them go. The point is the realization, the understanding, what stays as part of our own fabric. The reason for this warning is that one may become very attached to the bliss that may be felt when the mind is calm and clear. But then the snag is that it becomes a hindrance and it stops the progress of understanding. The nectar of pure experience may freeze into the ice of conceptualized memories and block the flow of wisdom. So it is a a useful tip to know about meditation. After this brief survey of the three aspects of wisdom, to study, reflection, meditation, we are getting just a little closer to the meaning of wisdom of the heart. But the picture cannot be complete until another crucial feature is painted in. 
It is said that wisdom and compassion are inseparable within our primordial, primordial nature. So how could there be hope of truly reconnect, reconnecting with our, with our perfect essence if either of its components was not nurtured on the journey towards this essence? Wisdom and compassion are like the wings of a bird and it cannot fly to liberation with just one wing. They are the components of our nature, they're, they're the intrinsic part of our nature and if there is one this the other, or else it's not the true nature. Traditionally, wisdom is compared to the eyes of a person and compassion to the feet and together they can lead us back to our true nature. If one is missing, the true goal will not be reached. Some of our teachers speak of blind compassion because there's a lot of talk about compassion sometimes about a lot of very well-intended people. And it is good. It's much better than not having any compassion or any interest in it. But when compassion is blind, in a sense that it is still fettered by a dualistic or egotistic understanding or a projection of what one thinks is good for others, it will not be pure compassion. It will be dualistic. It will be stained. So we are warned against blind compassion in the same way as wisdom without compassion is dry and uh, doesn't help us on the way. It is said also that profound wisdom is like a fire and fire needs wood in order to blaze. The wood is compassion and all the positive deeds that compassion inspires. These are the ones that are to be practiced by those who try to follow the Bodhisattva ideal. In Mahayana Buddhism, compassion is both the starting point and the fuel of the spiritual journey. Compassion should not be mistaken for wishy-washy sentimentality because it's a very profound and practical commitment to the ultimate happiness of all beings. It is the springing ground of all the real human qualities that we have to develop on the path, which are known as the six parameters Generosity, ethical conduct, forbearance, diligence, mental stability through meditation, and profound wisdom, the sixth parameter, our present topic. Compassion, in the way we see it, is directed to all forms of sentient life, not just human beings, and without exception or bias. It is an opening of the heart to others, and this letting go of egocentric concern is absolutely essential for the deeper insight to arise. The same is true of devotion. It is also a similar opening of the heart out of reverence and respect for teachers and the teachings of the enlightened beings. You could say in our metaphor of the fire, devotion is like a fan that makes the flame of insight shine high and bright. 
the teacher, who is, of course, a person with enough genuine realization to show the way to others, is of great importance in the Vajrayana tradition I follow. And I noticed that Ibn Arabi seems to put some stress on this point too in the last chapter of the kernel of the kernel when he says he's explaining the higher levels when he comes to explaining the higher levels of the path he says so those who want to find out let them hang on to the hem of a perfect person and ask of him because the one who has not tasted cannot know and in the third chapter of this same book He says, if you go to a teacher and come to know yourself, you will see everything in you and yourself in everything and you will come to know with certainty. Wisdom, compassion and devotion, they work in a most skillful synergy to transform the deluded perception of a dualistic reality transform that into the pure awareness of what is. From the very moment one begins to work on the spiritual path, long before one is able to develop wisdom and direct insight, compassion and devotion will gradually undermine the egocentric obsession through their quality, through their capacity to open the heart. So we have this ego, egocentric obsession and to break this shell, the opening of the heart is required through compassion, through devotion. This is a long-term job that undermines gradually, that eats up this ego obsession. And even before we acquire the proper wisdom that can have direct insight, this work is going on. And this slow, long-term undermining of ego cherishing will prove invaluable when the time comes to recognize one's true nature. Because, of course, there cannot be recognition of that if there is involvement with ego. At the end of this brief survey, I think a fairly good likeness of the wisdom of the heart is beginning to emerge. And before we fix it on the canvas, let us just notice that here we are talking of wisdom of the heart, not of your heart, not of my heart. Words are easy. We know that. The truth of the matter is famous for being very subtle, easily misconstrued and beyond verbalization. Anyway, I will now venture to say how I would like to portray true wisdom of the heart as profound wisdom nourished by compassion and fund by devotion. Profound wisdom, nourished by compassion, fund by devotion. I would say that too, in the way I understand it, in my tradition, this, is, this comes a bit close to a true wisdom of the heart. Of course, to paint this picture, I have used the brushes and paints of my tradition. I have full trust in the quality of my tools and materials. But I know my hand is unskilled. And it is the only culprit if some blotches have crept onto the canvas. And you will have to forgive me for that. In attempting to describe what is so hard to describe, I have taken comfort in the knowledge that you are aware that 
The color of the water is the color of the container, as pointed out by Junaid of Baghdad, which is why I feel at home with you. I'm so glad to be here. However, I also confess to feeling very much like one of the proverbial blind men trying to describe the elephant. Yet, in our thirst for the ultimate, we are prepared to use imperfect language and partial understanding to swap tails on the journey to the absolute and to try to get even just one step closer to it. I find that such exchanges sometimes spark off unexpected insight because a new facet of the diamond suddenly is being highlighted. A new reflection is glimpsed in another one of the 100,000 mirrors. So now finally we come to it. The wisdom of the heart unveils the heart of wisdom. Now that true wisdom of the heart has been defined as profound wisdom nourished by compassion and fanned by devotion, I think it is quite easy to see how this unveils the heart of wisdom. Quoting again Ibn Arabi, he said, and many others have said it along with him, there's no beginning, no end to this journey. And indeed, from the ultimate viewpoint, the whole spiritual journey need never have been taken. Yet, from our relative point of view, it is most definitely important to indispensable to undertake it. The important thing to remember is that throughout this journey, the perfect essence, the potential of enlightenment remains unchanged. Its nature never alters, even when it is covered by the most confused illusion. Primordial wisdom is the heart, it's the heart of wisdom. That's what I call the heart of wisdom, it's primordial wisdom, which is our true nature, which is here at the beginning, which is there at the end. That's the heart of wisdom. And the wisdom of the heart is what helps us to reconnect with it. Primordial wisdom, the heart of wisdom, is the same at the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Though it cannot manifest fully before it is recognized, its effects are felt nonetheless. In the same way as even when you have a thick cloud cover, you can feel heat and you can feel some sun, you see some sunlight. It's daylight. I would say that similarly, the outshining of compassion is our ability to feel love, compassion, and concern for others. This shines out of our primordial nature, even though it's completely obscured or partially obscured. Similarly, the outshining of primordial wisdom is our capacity to acquire wisdom in general, but more particularly wisdom of the heart. The wisdom of the heart is the natural offspring of primordial wisdom. Practice helps it to grow and the light of insight can dispel the clouds of delusion and dualistic perception vanishes of its own accord. When the seer, the seeing, and the seen are one, the wisdom of the heart recognizes its source, the heart of wisdom, 
primordial wisdom and they merge. Or rather, this is a limited dualistic vocabulary to say they merge because what happens then is that wisdom is as it is, as it always was and as it will always be, undivided, limitless and changeless. Here, of course, we enter the realm of ineffability. Words fail us and metaphors remain the only fragile pointers to the unimaginable. Let us hope that we look at the moon rather than at the finger pointing at the moon. The timeless perfection of the ultimate nature knows itself. It cannot be known by other. The heart of all knows itself. We call that recognizing our face. Some of the most inspired sacred poetry of, of Buddhism has been written on this topic. The great sage Saraha and many other enlightened teachers have used, in the connection of what we're talking about now, a very beautiful simile. They speak of the meeting of mother and child. At the end of the journey that never began, the child, wisdom of the heart, recognizes its mother, primordial wisdom. And then the wisdom of the heart has unveiled the heart of wisdom. <clears throat> 